Our scripture reading today is excerpts from Hebrews chapters 11, 12, and 13. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further words be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At the time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Amen. Amen, and welcome once more to Mosaic, and especially uh, we want to let you know about a couple things coming up. First of all, next week, next Sunday, November 5th, is not only the great American pastime of daylight savings time, so there you go, uh, free reminder for you, but also Sunday, Sunday, November 5th, next Sunday, is a really special week here at Mosaic. We're going to be doing a special one-off, just a, a one-week uh, look at some of the upcoming um, steps and vision for our church. Our elder team together is going to be giving a message and giving you an idea. Of, of what's coming next for us as a church and how we can all be a part of that. So especially want to encourage you to be back next Sunday. In two weeks, we'll be starting a series for the rest of the month of November called Making a Mosaic, and we'll be taking a deeper dive into our core values of worship, community, and mission. But today, as you can see, we are coming to the end of our journey through the journey, and we're calling it that because we've been taking a look at another journey that another group of people, another group of Christians made in their day. This was a, a group group of first century Christians that the book of Hebrews was written to. That's where we've been, the book of Hebrews. And this book was written to this group of people journeying in their own day through pain and through persecution, through loss of life and through loss of property. And as we've seen, these people were on the verge of giving up their faith in Jesus altogether. They were on the verge of quitting, of going back, of renouncing their faith. And so the book was written and the writer was coming to them saying, listen, you've got to see these number of things. And so the book along the way have said, you've got to see 
you've got a better word, that you've got a better hope, you've got a better covenant. A few weeks ago we saw, he said, you've got to see, you've got an even better resurrection. But today he gives them the capstone of the book. He gives them the final great image of the book of Hebrews. He says, to really make it, if you're going to make it from here to there, if you're going to make it on your journey, in the end, you've got to see that you've got a city yet to come. You've got to see that you've got the city of God ahead of you. You've got to see a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. That's what you need. You need the city of God in your life. And so with that in mind, I want to ask four questions of this passage, of this concept. What is, what's the city of God? Number two, I want to ask, why do we need it if it's so important? Three, what does it do to us? How does it shape us and change us? And fourth, how can we become a citizen of it? You guys ready? Here we go. Number one, let's ask, what is the city of God? Well, I think to get at a, at a right answer, we've got to take a, a step back and take a look at what cities meant to ancient people in their day. A little different than ours today. Cities in, in ancient times really were, first of all, cities were places of safety. They were places of safety. Cities had walls. You were protected, for the most part, from marauding uh, nomads and invaders. You were protected more or less from the elements uh, of food and water were delivered to cities. Cities were places of safety. But second, cities were also places of significance because the, the ruling class lived there, their religious leaders lived in cities, skilled workers lived in cities, laws were made in cities that governed the land, and sometimes cities became so significant that entire empires were ruled from cities, a, a Rome, Babylon, London, they were all cities from which empires ruled them even today. Cities can become so significant that if you get that city on your resume, it shows you're a somebody, right? I mean, come on, we all know what it means maybe to have like New York on your resume. You know, if you can make it there, you can make it where? Anywhere, Yeah. A couple of summers ago, Carrie and I actually took a trip to New York City, and we were there, and we got off our plane, and we had tickets to a Broadway show. We were going to see uh, Amazing Grace, great play, uh, all about the, the life and the conversion of John Newton, the former uh, slave trader. And so we were there, and we get in the theater, and we get seated, and sure enough, uh, as we're seated, sitting next to me is this fabulously wealthy older Jewish lady who had no inhibitions about striking up a conversation and asking really personal questions. So we were in there and, and seated and she was started talking to me and I could tell as the conversation unfolded that my estimation in her eyes began to plummet. Uh, I began to drop quickly. She began to ask me all about my life and she asked, are you married? I said, yes, this is my wife. And, and she said, well, uh, do you have kids? I said, yes. She said, how many? I said, four. Strike one. That's way too many kids to have, apparently, for one person. Then she asked, well, what do you do for a living? I said, the Christian pastor. She said, all right, strike two, you know. Uh, she said, well, uh, you know, where your kids go to school? At the time, I said, well, they were, they're all homeschooled. She said, and where are you from? I said, from Texas. I'm like a walking stereotype, right, in New York City. Here I am. But then she asked me a question. She said, well, where in Texas are you from? I said, well, I'm from Austin. And she said, oh, you're from Austin. Austin's not like the rest of Texas. 
said, you're right, it's not. And from then on, we were chums and buds and pals. She said, oh, my, my daughter used to work and live in Hollywood and L.A., and she's moved to Austin, and she loves it. My daughter lives there. Austin, I like the rest of Texas, see? Because the city is significant. Therefore, I'm significant and maybe so significant in her eyes at the end of the show and the, the, the cast comes back on the stage and the whole crowd, they lead in a, in a sing-along of Amazing Grace, the great hymn. Uh, she elbows me during the song and says, you should get them to come to your church. I bet your church would love them, you know. Okay. And I got to share with her my, actually my whole story, my conversion of coming to faith in Jesus, the whole miracle part and prophecy deal and supernatural thing. And at the end, she just stares at me. And then turns to her Jewish lady uh, friend who was sitting there with her, and she said, he said he's a pastor. <laughs> and her friend, without even looking up for the program, just says, oh. <laughs> oh. Well, what had happened? Again, the city was significant, and therefore I was significant. And cities, as of course, in this day and age, just like then, cities are places of so much safety and so much significance that sometimes they became places also of three third of salvation because the needs, can you see in a way, the needs of the soul were met, the needs of the body were met, the needs of the family were met. Cities could become places of so much safety and significance, they became places of salvation. Hebrews 11, it says, Abraham, look at Abraham here. It says, Abraham, because he saw a kind of a city, it says, looking ahead, he looked forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. This was saying he could live anywhere. He could live at anywhere, anytime, go through anything. Why? Because he saw a kind of a city with so much safety, so much significance, it brought a kind of salvation and security to his soul now. Why is that? Why would this city do that for him? Well, to get to the answer to that, we've got to fast forward a bit to the end of the book, the end of the story. At the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, the Apostle John is also writing to another group of Christians journeying through persecution and pain and alienation from their culture. And here in Revelation 21, John gives us the explicitly Christian vision for the end of days. Look at this, Revelation chapter 21. It says, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. What is the city of God? Oh, this is showing us. The city of God is a place and a power from another world who, because it has so much power, when it comes into our world, transforms, touches, heals everything it encounters. Oh, this is saying that the city of God, like like our our sun does in our world, like when our our sun comes into our world in a smaller way, when the sun comes in and the, the light breaks over the horizon and the dawn, the sun comes in and it makes things visible. 
that weren't visible before. When the sun comes, it warms, it heals, it begins to transform. This is saying that the city of God, like the sun, except with infinite power, infinite glory, infinite beauty, will come in and transform everything. This is what the Bible calls the restoration of all things. This is now the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This is God fulfilling his promise to his people all the way back in the book of Exodus when he said, I will be their God, they will be my people, and I will dwell among them. What God promised him, he is making good through the city of God. The city of God, can you see, the Christian vision isn't just bodies escaping this world. It's a city. It's a place coming now. This is from God into our world and changing everything it touches. The city of God is a place with so much safety, so much significance, it brings salvation to all it touches. That's what it is. Number one, that's the city of God. Number two, let's ask then, well, why do we need it? It's so important. Why do we need it? All right. Look at chapter 12. It gives us a hint here. Verse 22 says, but you, you people in the book of Hebrews and to us today, you've come where? Mount Zion, the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God. He's describing the place, the city, the judge of all to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. He's saying, listen, all right, I know you all have been going through it. You've been persecuted. You've been judged by a culture. And listen, they were, and they suffered immensely in their day. And it was actually about to get worse after Hebrews was written. Near the end of the first century, the Roman emperor Domitian came to power and began the first really full-scale legalized assault to eradicate Christianity from the planet. And Domitian came along, he was famous, for impaling Christians on spikes covering them with pitch and lighting them on fire while still alive. The mission was famous also for throwing Christians to the wild beasts for sport. It was famous for crucifying Christians by the hundreds and lining the roads to Rome to let everyone, including the people of God, know there is not a city for Christians in this empire. There's not a country for Christians. There's no uh, empire for Christians. Not in my book. Not in my world. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, all right, we, look, look, you guys are suffering. You're suffering immensely. But remember, remember, when the people of God, when our people in our past, our ancestors, when we were suffering back in the book of Exodus, when God uh, delivered us from Pharaoh, when we were slaves then, being brutalized and being killed then, God broke the back of our oppressors, broke the back of Pharaoh, brought us out of Egypt and to a place where? Called what? Mount Sinai, he says. Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai was great. Man, that's where God gave us the Ten Commandments. Moses was there. Charlton Heston was there. Cecil B. DeMille was there. Special effects crew, they documented the whole thing. You can see it. It's called the Ten Commandments. And it was amazing. And the smoke was there. And the earthquake was there. It was awesome. It was terrifying. We couldn't even touch it. Oh, but now he says, you haven't come to that. You hadn't come to Mount Sinai. He says, no, you have come now. Where? To Mount Zion, the city of the living God. We couldn't even touch Sinai in our past, but now we're coming to a place. He says, we'll not only be able to touch, it'll touch us. We'll be there with the firstborn Jesus, with thousands upon thousands of angels, with the saints of God throughout history. You're coming to this place. And if you can see that, 
It'll give your heart hope right now. That's why we need it. If you can see that city in the future, you can have hope in your heart right now. All right. Now I can hear some of you say, well, all right. Well, that's, of course, you know, Morgan, that's like the deal all religious systems have, all faith systems have. You know, they have like the, 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 you know, the sweet by and by, the pie in the sky, deal when you die kind of thing. That's what religions all have. This is like, you know, faith in the afterlife or whatever. That's like the thing that people have when they can't handle their life right now, when they can't handle the circle of life. By the way, most depressing song ever. You know, when you die, you're you're eaten by worms, but we're going to sing about it in a movie, right? That's for people who can't handle the future. You know, it's like religions, like the the opiate of the people, a la Karl, Karl Marx. Is that what this is? No, no, no. And before I show you why you need this hope right now, I want to show you why the human heart actually needs hope in general. And I want to push back just for a second on all the cynicism of our culture against any kind of future hope. Because I believe, and you should know, you should believe and know about yourself, that human beings are unavoidably hope-based creatures. What you believe about your future impacts, affects your life right now. Consider this. Consider the classic illustration. Two people hired to do the same job. These two people are told, you know what? If you go to work and and, and your job is going to be for eight hours a day, for a whole year, screwing in and unscrewing out a light bulb. That's your job. Eight hours a day, 365 days in a year, and that's your job. And the the employer said to person one, first person, if you take this job, at the end of that time, your salary is going to be $20,000. Congratulations. But that same employer says to the second person, if you do this job, same thing, same pay, excuse me, same same hour, same all that, at the end of it, your salary is actually going to be $20 million. Ooh. Well, what do you think is going to happen along the way? The guy who's only getting paid 20 grand, when that man, when his arm gets tired, right, it gets a little creaky, back gets tight, maybe the other guy's grumpy, food's not good, service isn't good, what's he going to do? Probably going to quit. What's the second person going to do? Oh, they're going to be thinking the whole time, no matter how bored they get, no matter how painful it gets, no matter how much that arm hurts, back creeps, other guy gets grumpy, he's going to be thinking about his future. He's going to be thinking about what's coming to him. He's going to be thinking about how his future hope impacts what he does right now. And that's the same for all of us. Human beings are unavoidably hope-based, hope-shaped creatures. What we believe about our future impacts our life right now. But second, you don't just need a hope. You actually need this hope. And let me show you why this hope in the city of God is so necessary for us today. 1947, a man by the name of Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman was an African-American scholar and thinker and writer, deeply shaped Martin Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, philosophy of nonviolent protest. And uh, Howard Thurman was giving a speech at Harvard University, and he was giving a speech to push back against the secular uh, critique of the old Negro spirituals, of the old slave songs that the slaves created and sung. They were full of symbols uh, and stories about the, the next world and judgment and robes and crowns and sweet chariots coming forward to carry us home. And the charge against these songs was that they made the singers too docile. That faith in in the future world to come made them passive and too resigned to their present condition. But Howard Thurman, African-American man, 
himself pushed back hard against that thought. And here's what he wrote. Here's what he said. He said, the facts make clear that singing these songs did serve to deepen the capacity for endurance and the absorption of suffering. It taught a people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face those facts that argue the most dramatically against all hope. And to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a what? What's the word? Come on. Hope that the environment with all its cruelty could not crush. People pushed back and they said, well, okay, that sounds nice, but you know what, man, all those symbols about, you know, judgment day and and robes and angels and crowns and reward and all that stuff, you can't take it literally. Thurman said, well, if you can't take it literally, you can't take it at all. It's of no use to you. You know, he's right. I mean, can you see how, like, condescending, how paternalistic the secular critique and view of the the afterlife is? Because essentially what they're saying is, you know what, if we had a a time machine, right, we had time machine technology, we should just go back to those slaves out in the fields, and we should say to them, listen, y'all, in the future, we discovered, science has proven it to us, at least we believe, that there's no such thing as God, therefore... There's no such thing as a judgment day, meaning all the people who are brutalizing you, traumatizing you, raping you, guess what? They're going to get away with everything. God will never call a single person to account. They're going to get away with it all. There's no hope for you now. But not only that, because there's no such thing as a, a future life, a future world, a future city, guess what? Anything you've ever lost in this life, any desire you've ever had in this life that you hope will be restored to you in another, that's a fake and a fraud too. There's no hope for you now. There's no hope for you then. So go back out there. Keep on going. Listen, that's no hope at all. And Thurman knew that. And you should too. And I want to say, he knew, he saw that those singers, because they had, because they saw the city that was to come, it gave them hope right now. It did it for them. It can do it for you. That's number one. That's the city of God. Number two, that's why we need it. It gives our hearts a kind of hope nothing else can give. Now let's ask then, well, number three, if we really do have that hope, what does that hope do to us? How does it change us? And this, by the way, this is where the Bible, oh, it gets so interesting. I love this because this is telling us as much as, hear this, as much as there's a city that's yet to come, is also showing us, ready, ready, wait for it, wait for it. That city is already here. The city's already here. It's already among us. Look at this, verse 22 again. Gives us a hint that says, but you what? Have come. You right now, those living in the past, those alive today, you have come. You're already there in a kind of a way. You're already there in Mount Zion. You're already there in the city of a living God. You're already living in a way in the heavenly Jerusalem. You say, how can it be? Oh, it's because all the early apostles, Christian writers, teachers, they saw what Jesus had said when Jesus came into the world. Jesus Christ, Mark 1, first message. He says this, repent for the kingdom of God is what? Near, right, at hand. It's coming. Jesus never said, my kingdom is fully come. He never said, oh, because I'm here, my kingdom is totally established. It's in its finality here. You know, he says, my kingdom is coming it's coming near and all these writers and christian believers they picked up on this and they saw oh yes number one jesus because he's come oh he's proven our world is not a closed system god can come in and move and change any life anytime including yours today 
But second, they also saw because Jesus had come, because he lived and he died and he was resurrected, they called him the first fruits, like a, like a down payment on what was to come, like when you see the, the first fruits budding on a tree. And they saw because Jesus had come, he died, he was resurrected, that God would do that in its entirety, one day for all time. And they said, we live therefore in the already come and yet not yet. There's a city that's to come And yet we live in a kind of a city now. There's a city of God is to come, but it's already present. Anytime the people of God gather, Jesus says, you're you're like a city on a hill. The kingdom is coming near to the world. And what this does, can you see, is it introduces a kind of attention that if we ever attempt to resolve it, will inevitably end in spiritual disaster. And let me try to show you what I mean. Because this tension is so important for us, the kingdom that is coming, but yet it's come near already in a kind of a way. Because this tension is real, because we got to live in it, this tension means for us, therefore, ready? We are not going to fit in. We're not going to fit in anywhere. We're not going to fit in any time. The Christian people of God are not going to fit in in history, any time, any place, any nation. You say, well, man, it would have been so nice to live back then. It would have been nice to live in that time and place in history. No, it wouldn't. (laughs) They got some stuff right. They got some stuff wrong, just like the people before them, just like we will, okay? But this tension means that we are not going to fit in any time, any place. And so what this means is we're not going to fit in in specific. We're not going to fit in in two ways. Let me try to show you. First, this tension means that we're not going to fit in politically. We're not going to fit in politically. Here we go. Fit in politically. Because sometimes being a citizen of the heavenly city means that you're going to look really liberal by contrast sometimes. Why? Because the conservative trend in any country is to always put the state as supreme, make people swear allegiance to the state no matter what. And this happens sometimes in our nation, right? Happened in 1970s Poland, happened in 1930s Germany, happened in first century Rome. Why was Jesus put to death, huh? Why were those first Christians executed? They were executed as enemies of the state. They were considered branded liberals. Matter of fact, atheists because they had no visible idol to worship. And sometimes what it means to look like a Christian is that you don't fit in with the conservative party of your day. And by the way, aren't you glad for that? You ought to be glad for that. Now, you don't get nervous. You can say amen to that. We can all look back and say, I'm so glad that Christians in that time, in that place, didn't just go with the flow of the conservative agenda. When everyone else rallied around the state as supreme, Christians said, your agenda doesn't just not define us. Oh, it can't define us because our ultimate first citizenship is in the city of God. But sometimes, by contrast, being a citizen of the city of God means you look in your day really conservative at points because Christians have always said truth is not relative. Morality is not relative. Morality is not just whatever it means for you. God owns everything, which means, by the way, he owns your body and he can tell you what to do with your body and your life and your life choices. And anytime the people of God have ever insisted on this, they've always looked really conservative. 
Whatever they've said to the culture around them, you know what? No, to be free doesn't just mean we break all the rules when we want. To be a Christian sometimes means you say, the liberal agenda can't define me because my citizenship is in the city of God first. Because here, Hebrew says, we don't have an enduring city. We don't have it. Sometimes we just might not fit in politically. But second, to be a Christian means that you also might not fit in socially either. If you've ever read Augustine's uh, couple of books, uh, Confessions, uh, if you've ever read The City of God, then first of all, let me just say that you're a better person than I am because I got going and I couldn't finish either one of them because you get in there and it's really, man, they're so complicated. And of course, Augustine was the great uh, early church uh, African theologian and, and preacher, pastor. And when I tried to read Augustine, I found myself thinking, who's he talking to? Like, what's he talking about? He's talking about stuff that doesn't even matter anymore. And then it hit me, oh, yeah, that's right. He's talking about this stuff that doesn't even matter anymore because Augustine was defending Christianity against all the criticism and issues of his day. And the issues of his day are now in the junk pile of history and the dust bin of philosophy. Because, as C.S. Lewis said, all that isn't eternal is eternally out of date. Augustine, he was told, Augustine, you guys are out of step socially. You Christians believe things that don't fit in with our modern culture and state. You need to get with the program. You need to get modern, upgraded. And he went to work dismantling all those thoughts, which aren't even the things that bother us anymore today. Those arguments have faded. But Christianity has remained and proven Augustine's point in the city of God which is that Christians will never be in step socially at every point. See, our views, Christian views on sex, that it's not just for the individual's use, it's for the building up of community. How you use your sexuality affects everyone around you. And our views on money, same thing. It's not just for you to use. Build your own platform life. Your, your money's supposed to be used for the building up of community. Those views don't fit in always socially. Our views on how we love our enemies. We forgive those who hate us. For the, even for, to the point of, man, even death sometimes. Man, that doesn't always fit in socially, depending on where you live. See, I could go on and on. Because we don't have an enduring city, It means we won't always fit in, which means that sometimes, many times, the point is the city of man that we are residents of now may just hate us. It may just not like us. It may brand us a threat to the city, may brand us a threat to the country or the nation, a threat to fill in the blank whatever value that the city of man holds up in its day as supreme. And therefore, to be a citizen of the city of God But a resident of the city of man means you are always loving a place that just might not love you back. It means you're always serving a place that might not serve you back. It means that you love and serve people around you. They may not love or serve you back. But in the end, friends, church, if we will maintain this tension, it also means we can become the finest residence that the city of man has ever seen. Look at this. From an ancient writing, this is called The Letter to Diognetus. It's a fascinating look into early Christianity, written by a converted pagan Roman citizen. He was writing to his friend named Diognetus, and he described the lives he saw Christians living just a few decades after Hebrews was written. 
Here's what he said. He said, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs, showing they're not ethnocentric. Ethnocentric. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect, follow some outlandish way of life. Like, they don't just retreat to the desert, you know. And yet there's something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. He's saying, oh, we don't fit in socially, we may not fit in politically, but yet we can become extraordinary citizens of the city of man in our own day. How do they get this power? How can we do the same? Number four, Hebrews 13, closing words of the book, shows us this, verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. See, to suffer, this is outside the, the city gate. To suffer outside the gate was a way of excluding a person from the community inside the gate. It was a way of branding them as shameful and humiliated. And therefore, this is saying, if you want the kind of power it takes not to resolve this tension, if you want the power to be both for you your city and yet against it where it needs to be stood against if you want the power to love the place you are a resident of right now you got to go and see and look at take into you what jesus christ has done for you go to him as is saying look at him he was misunderstood by his own countrymen he was uh, he was murdered by his own people he was manipulated he was uh, marginalized by people with power taken outside the city gate so that everyone can know they were saying that Jesus we reject you Jesus we reject your values we reject your city we reject your rule over us we reject your kingdom that's to come and so then because they did that The first citizen, the king, of the city of God was put to death by the commoners of the city of man so that we, the commoners of the city of man, could become citizens of the city of God. Oh, but he didn't do this just for us. And this is crucial to see because if all you hear from this message today is go be a better citizen, do more community service. Oh, listen, that's not enough. You can't just try harder. No one can do this perfectly. You can't be a great citizen of the city of God on your own steam. You should hear this. You should read this text and be thinking, I can't do that. Because the Bible would say, you're right. You can't do it on your own. Because the message of the Bible isn't just that Jesus did this for you as a great and nice example. No, this is saying he did this as you, in your place, as your substitute. Look at this. He didn't just suffer outside the city gate. He says he did it, look at this, to make the people holy. What's the word? Through, 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 because of his own blood. There it is. The great exchange in your place. He does what you can't do, so that now you can do 
what we can do, what we can never do on our own. He has made us something we can never be in our own because it's a saying he went in our place as us. He suffered outside the city gate. And you got to see that. You got to see that it shouldn't have been him. It should have been you suffering, dying for your own sins, me doing the same. But it wasn't. He went as us. And if, if when you see that, the truth, that beauty strikes and grasps your heart. You, if when you see that, hear that, you say, you cried out, Jesus, Jesus, save me. Save me and keep on saving me. Keep on saving me. Keep on changing me. I need you to help me love these people. I can't love these people I'm living with. I can't love the person I'm married to. I can't love the people at my work. I can't love the people in my city. I can't love the people of my state. I can't love my country. I can't love the world. Jesus would say, you're right. You can't. You can't do it on your own. But I can. I have. I've done it. And now my power can come into you and give you, give you the love the grace, the heart change that you need to be able to do this for a lifetime. When one of the great Christian people in history, a man by the name of John Bunyan, when he was jailed in his own beloved nation of England, and jailed, by the way, in the 1600s, jailed for just conducting a church service outside the Church of England. When he was in jail, do you know what book he wrote that's never been out of print for more than 350 years? It's the longest single consecutively printed and published book that was written in the English language. You may have heard of it. It was called Pilgrim's Progress, but actually that's not quite true. The full title is this, The Pilgrim's Progress from this world to that which is to come. And these were the opening words that Bunyan wrote from a prison cell. He said, I seek a place that can never be destroyed, one that is pure and that fadeth not away and is laid up in heaven and safe there to be given at the time appointed to them that seek it with all their heart. Read it so, if you will, in my book. And the main character of his book, a man by the name of Christian, makes his own journey from the city of destruction to the place ahead called the celestial city, the heavenly city, the city that's to come. And on his way, he composes a poem about his journey. And may this poem be said of us as well. He said, this hill, though high, I long to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go. Than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Friends today, here we don't have an enduring city. But we seek the city that is to come.